on the church, and one of my greatest desires is to have our church filled with people, not just filled, I'd love to have us filled with people, but filled with people who invite people to church. But if you, if you invite people to church, um, there's a chance that God's going to do some great works in them. And uh, I read an article a few uh, years ago, actually, um, that, that had, that the title of the article was, please don't invite me to church. I know you're very uncomfortable talking about your church with me, so please don't invite me. And uh, from that article, I, uh, I wrote some of these lines out, and pretty soon it just kind of flowed. And so um, Haley's been kind enough to put these brave souls together um, to, to do this for you. So just concentrate on what they're saying and see if you can pick up the theme here. Hey, um, don't worry about inviting me to church this weekend. Don't, don't worry, worry about, about inviting me to church, church this weekend. weekend. Don't worry about inviting me to church this weekend. Don't worry about inviting me to church this weekend. Don't worry about inviting me to church this weekend. Really, I've been thinking about it. I know we're friends and you go to church, but I know talking about your faith makes you uncomfortable. At least that's the sense I get. Whenever I bring up religion or God, you just get a tense. I never really understood why. It doesn't weird me out. It doesn't make me look to you. But I'm happy to relate to what is obviously something that makes you uncomfortable. Besides, what would I be missing? It's not like I'm an atheist. I'm not. I believe in God. I'm not sure of which, but I believe in a God. I'm spiritual. I wanted to better. I guess I'd like to know more about the Bible. I do wish I could be a better parent. Have a better marriage. Maybe you can focus on others instead of worrying about my problems. But the last time I went to church, that isn't what exactly what was offered. I wasn't sure what that church was about. Besides, we both know I'm not exactly the poster child for Christianity. I've got baggage. Got issues. I've got problems. I've got questions. I don't think church is exactly the kind of place for people like me. I don't think church people are going to like this. I wouldn't fit in your church. I have too many flaws. I've got tattoos. I've got piercings. I'm divorced. I'm a single parent. I'm too ADD for church. I don't like to dress up. I don't want to be hit up for money. I don't like organ music. I get freaked out by crowds. I don't like being preached at. I already know my bad points. I don't know how to pray. I can't sing. And on top of all that, I don't really believe in hell. So I'm not worried about what happens after I die. As far as my kids and family are concerned, I'm willing to let them choose whatever they, religion they want, if any at all. Church, church was boring for me as a kid, so why would I want to drag them to one every week? Well, it's probably best that they just not go. So, so please, please don't, don't worry about, about inviting me. me. It makes you awkward. It won't have anything to offer my life. I couldn't exactly come as I am. I listen to Coldplay. I like heavy metal. I'll miss the country music. All people will make it to some sort of heaven. My husband and my kids won't like it anyway. I don't need church. I don't need help. I've got it all under control. Nothing about God and faith matters for real life anyway. I'm not worth helping. I'd be too much trouble for you. There really is nothing good that would come to me in going to your church. Right? Right? But if by some chance I've got this all wrong, then for God's sake, for my sake, for my children's sake, for my eternal life's sake, invite me. And please, please keep inviting me till I come. Makes a good point, doesn't it? There's a whole lot of friends and family that we have 
out there in this dark, dark world that are just like that. They have all kinds of great excuses for not coming to church. Might be the music, might be something else. But in the end, they're asking that exact same question. Am I missing something? Why would I even need to come? And I believe at Northside, I believe most of our core families here are completely clued in to the value of the body of Christ and what the church can do for you personally, but what it means to God when you connect your heart and commit to a local church. And I'm so proud of our church family that's here. You guys, We have a very uh, group of core committed people. I meet with several pastors throughout the week and we pray together and talk about our churches and our challenges and they give me good ideas and I share with them our ideas and things we're doing and, and uh, one of the pastors was saying, I just can't get anybody to, to step up and help. And uh, I was like, you know, some days I have exactly the opposite challenge. I get people calling me saying, you know, what can I do to help you today? And I go, I don't know what the, where the list is of things that we need done. Uh, but we have a lot of volunteers and a lot of helpers at our church, and I'm very, very proud of that. So I want to uh, challenge you today to put your thinking cap on and... And try and connect some dots, some ministry stuff that we've done together uh, as a church and, and uh, the things that, the, the people that we serve and help with. Tal, you hear the ring just a little bit? So, um, but the, the people that we serve and help with uh, in our community here, the, the culture that surrounds us, it, it impacts our families and impacts people. And so we've had this four-part series called... Um, Church 101, and we've looked at the central purpose and value of the church, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. Everybody knows it. I'm not going to make you repeat it out loud, but it's the main thing we're called to do by God is to reach the lost and raise up a biblical community. I am going to ask you, who's supposed to do that? Who? Yeah, that's that three-letter word, me. Remember? <laughs> Remember when the first series I said, it's a three-letter word, uh, me. But it's, it's you. You're the ones that are supposed to to be doing that. Now, I am too, but that's just because I'm part of the same body you're part of. Our church is supposed to be reaching the lost and putting together a biblical community of people that will grow up and reach the lost and build a biblical community. It just recycles itself when it's done well. And so we're, we're challenged to, to become all that. I'm just going to ask you again to, to think in your head as an individual, as a Christian that's part of this church, part of a local church, are you reaching lost people? I shared with you a bunch of stories about that and how, how important that is to do that. So we've looked at the need to be engaged in our culture. We looked at Acts chapter 17 where the Apostle Paul uh, got together and went through, through Athens. We're going to look back at that in a little bit here. And, uh, but he was distressed by the amount of idolatry that was in his culture. And so we, we have to examine our culture. We have to look at our culture. And we have to have an understanding of what drives our culture so that we can minister to it. We've talked about being, uh, Jesus prayed very specifically on a night that he was praying so hard that blood came from the pores of his face. He was praying so hard that God sent an angel to him in the Garden of Gethsemane to minister to him. And you know what he was praying? God help them be in the world, but not of the world. That's what he was praying in, in John chapter 17. So we, we are supposed to be a part of this culture that influences the culture rather than gets influenced by the culture. But the culture is moving away from God, and everybody knows that. If you're paying any attention at all to our culture, uh, we're moving far, far from God. And so I just want to tell you four truths, four dominant features of our culture. 
It'll help you just understand. Nobody here should be surprised by this. If this shocks you, if you're like, oh, I didn't know we were like that um, as a culture. Um, if you don't know that, you're just dead. You, you have completely died and you're not paying any attention at all. But there's four words I want you to just get in your head that's part of our culture. They, ring, they, they are real strong in our culture. The first one's materialism. That's a preoccupation with material objects and comforts. And uh, oh my goodness, is our culture completely consumed with materialisms. We are constantly trying to find a way to make things more and more comfortable, more and more easy for us. You know, the microwave's not fast enough, so somebody's going to have to invent something faster than that, you know, and, and uh, that whole deal. And, you know, the phones were too big, and then they were too whatever. And so we just keep adapting and changing things. And then as a culture, as an individual in the culture, we start having to have all of that. And we actually have, uh, you know, there are legislators now in our government that believe it's an, an inalienable right that you have a cell phone or Internet uh, connectivity. And I'm just going to say, you know, Brother Cochran and Miss Jean have lived a very long time without that stuff. A long time without internet. Now they have it now and they use it well, but it, it's not a life or death situation. Materialism, though, says have to have. Consumerism goes hand in hand with that. It's the second dominant feature of our culture. That's an increasing consumption of goods and uh, for self-worth and gain. It's where you begin to believe your worth is based on, you know, what you have, and you kind of define yourself uh, by the things that you have. Um, and when I was in high school, it was uh, long enough to go that you're, you were defined by your car. And uh, whatever car you drove, whatever kind of car you had on campus, that's the kind of person you were. So when I showed up in my dad's 1974 Pinto, dark green, brown dashboard, light tan interior, hideously ugly car, Dark green pinto, no air condition, AM radio. I was not being defined in my culture as cool at all. Nothing at all in my culture said I was cool. But because my consumeristic instincts to have that, you know, of course, it was the car my dad let me drive till I could afford one. So, But the, one of the reasons I bought that Mustang, I had a Mustang a long time ago that was really cool. Had stripes and everything. <laughs> one of the reasons I bought that Mustang because I wanted to be redefined in my culture. You know what? And it was amazing. When I drove in my, my senior year, when I drove that car, we had parking spaces at my high school down at UMS. We had a, you had an individual parking space. And, of course, my little Pinto parked next to these other Trans Ams. It was a real rich school. So there's Trans Ams. There's uh, ta what we call Tahoes now. But uh, back then they were just the latest SUV like Broncos and all. And then, and then there was a whole bunch of just rows of Mercedes and those kind of cars. And my little Pinto would park right in there. And... <laughs> And so I remember the day that I parked that white Mustang with the blue stripes up in that parking space and thought, yeah, now wait. You know, and I mean, it was a buzz all over. Whose car is that? Why is that in Gibbons' parking space? We went by last names in my school. Why is that in Gibbons' parking space? You know, so everybody said, hey, man, whose car's in your space? I went, that'd be my car. You know, I saved up and got that car, and I'm making payments, and yeah. You know, and I just remember everybody thought I was cool. I wasn't cool until I had that car. We define ourselves that way. It's a very dangerous part of our culture. Now, nowadays, kids define themselves by their electronics, okay? I've noticed high school kids really don't care about cars as much as they used to. We used to go crazy over the kind of car and the kind of stuff you had. Now it's all about your electronics and or your electronics in your car. <laughs> but it's just about do you have a, a, you know, this kind of tablet or this, what kind of phone do you have? That's how you define yourself. It's dangerous in our culture to do that. last two are hedonism, which is seeking pleasure or happiness at, as the highest goal. And then... All of that boils down to the culture we live in is narcissistic. Excessive self-love and self-centered. And it's a culture that says, 
It is all about me. I have to be comfortable. I have to be happy. I have to have all the fun stuff, the good stuff. Um, I have to... I am the center of my universe, and everybody has to help me be happy and comfortable. Now, you can read articles any week you want to on any website, uh, news website, about how our culture is doing exactly this. People expect our government, and they expect life, they expect life to just give them good things and fun things and easy things, and they want their life to be easy. I talked to a, a grandmother a couple days ago, um, and... <laughs> She wants to help her grandson raise money for a car. And uh, so she said, well, you can come over and clean part of my house for me. And uh, he did it one time. And he said, never doing that again. That's hard work. He's 15 years old. Never doing that again. That's hard work. And, you know, and Grandma didn't pay very much. And uh, so his parents, instead of, you know, beating him, sorry, instead of beating him senseless, say, yes, you are, and you should be helping your grandmother just for free. You know, instead of doing that, they're like, that's okay. We'll get you a car. You know, and she was just fit to be tied. She's like, why would they not let him earn it? Why wouldn't they make him just have to do something to earn the car? But they're just going to give him a nice car when he turns, you know, uh, 16. They're going to give him a nice car. He doesn't have to work. And every time he's worked, it's been too much work. It's too hard. You know, he's expecting, you know, this 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid's expecting life just to give him everything. Because his parents, bless their hearts, are giving him everything. And he's not learning the value of hard work. And uh, so we had this long talk while I was with her, you know, about, you know, when I was 11 years old, I was already cutting grass with a push mower, drag it from my house down a dirt road. You ever drag a push mower down a dirt road? That's a whole lot of fun. But I'd drag it down our little dirt road and just knock on doors, say, hey, can I cut your grass? $5, $10, cut your whole yard. And, I mean, I used to cut these huge two and three acre yards on La Coast Road. And uh, just with that push mower back and forth for hours and hours, I'd drink from the hose, you know, back when it was legal to drink from the hose. And uh, you know, so I drink from the hose for a while and just keep on cutting grass, keep on cutting grass till it's all done. That's a different culture now. Our culture now is consumed, uh, literally overwhelmed by these character traits. And I'm just telling you, it eats people alive. The friends you have, this stuff runs through their mind and their heads all the time, and it's driving our culture. It's driving our friends, and it's driving them straight to. Uh, uh, a place that's far from God and knocking on hell's door. You know, Satan has a real hell, by the way. And uh, one of our um, readers said, you know, I don't really believe in hell. Well, you cannot believe in something and it still hits you right in the face one day. So one day, everybody that's here is going to face heaven or hell uh, based on our eternal decisions. So ultimately, each of these things, if you boil it down, they, they boil down to two, two areas. When I thought through, through this a little bit, I, I put this in your notes for you. Um, the average American is lost in what I call idolatry. And uh, the idolatry of materialism and consumerism is an idolatry of things and stuff. We just have to have things and stuff, and we have to have you know, places to put our things and our stuff, and we have to big, build bigger places or buy bigger places, and we're always trying to expand our things and our stuff. And all of us are guilty. I'm as guilty as anybody of struggling with that. And then we also idolize ourself. The hedonism and the narcissism is when we put ourselves on a throne. So we're either putting stuff, most of the time in our culture, people are putting stuff on a throne and, and literally exalting it and worshiping it is most important, or they're putting themselves on a throne and saying, I should be getting all this praise and all this glory. Now, I'm just going to ask you because I'm, a bunch of you are writing notes. Does that all make sense to you? And you're not shocked by this, right? All that makes sense? Okay, Brandon's with me, so Al's with me. It all makes sense. That's our culture that we live in. 
And the problem is, if you look back at Acts 17, will you just turn there with me? One, one last glance at Acts 17 to finish out our, our series. We're going to end up in Corinthians in a minute, but Acts chapter, two, or chapter 17. The Apostle Paul chased out of a couple of different towns and, and on the run ends up in Athens. And there he just walks around. And when you get to verse 16, it says, Now Paul, while Paul, Acts 17, 16, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him. And he was uh, beholding a city full of idols. Full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the uh, God-fearing Gentiles and the marketplace everywhere without now, he was in this city, and the Bible says he, it literally says he was distressed. Uh, the Greek word there means, the, and it also says of the idols, that they were thick. The, the, the city was thick with idols. It just means they were lined up everywhere. Um, it's, it's the way you describe a field that's grown up too thick in weeds. And Paul said the idols, they were thick. And then he says there were tons of idols, and his reaction is that it stirred him inside. The Greek word literally means it angered him on the inside to see all that. Now, he's not angry at the people. He's angry at what's happened systematically to the Romans in Athens and to the Greeks that are there. He's just angry that they've lost sight of the real God, and he knows the real God. So you remember the story in Acts 17. He goes back to, to teach them, and he says, Hey, I found this idol that's to an unknown God. I want to explain who that guy is because he's the only one that counts. You can take all the other ones down and get all the thick rows of idols out of your way because there's one true and living God. And so the culture is strong like it used to be. And, and we've got to look at the idolatry of our culture and we've got to let it distress us. We've got to let it frustrate us. And we've got to say we, we as Christians understand the difference. We understand the responsibility we have to not be consumeristic or materialistic or hedonistic or narcissistic. We understand the importance of breaking our culture. But the culture is a lot stronger than it used to be. When you were a kid, when I was a kid, you could break out of those cultural molds. And it was unusual at my high school for me to, uh, to be a Christian. Myself and about three other kids were Christians there. And uh, we took pretty hard ribbings for it. But uh, we could break that culture. It's not as easy anymore. And you can look at all kinds of examples of that. Um, you can look at movie stars. Uh, you get the, the Miley, Miley Cyrus who grows up as a, a great you know, young actress and everybody likes her and all the Disney stuff she does. And then all of a sudden, you know, she's just completely consumed in the culture, gets all idolizing herself, you know, and then she just turns into this terrible role model for kids. And you, and you look at it all and you say, man, the, the culture just destroyed her. But it doesn't just happen to movie stars. It happens to people in your world. There are youth right now that are not at church today. They're at home. They're on Facebook. Or if they're up yet, they won't get up until about 1.30 or 2. When they finally do get up, they're going to, and, and college kids, they're going to they're gonna get up and they're going to get on Facebook and check all their social networking friends and make sure everybody's okay and nobody's mad at them. And, uh, and they're going to hang out today and do absolutely nothing of eternal value. Nothing. And they're not even going to think in eternal values because they're thinking in these categories right here. It's all about that stuff. You understand? We have an answer that's very different for that. And as a church, we have to be willing to put that culture out in front of them. So I want to challenge you with 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
our closing challenge of our Church 101 series. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm not going to... I'm not going to exegete this passage. I'm just going to pound on it with you, okay? There's two different ways to look at it. And I've exegeted this numerous times with you. I'm also not going to spend a lot of time telling you that it's relevant to you. And it's not just the apostles that are supposed to do this. There are numbers of scriptures in Corinthians and other places that teach us we're supposed to be just like this. So this isn't just an apostolic behavior that's there, okay? This is the real deal for all of us as Christians. We should live just like this. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. You probably want to curl your toes up in your shoes because this gets real uncomfortable real fast. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Paul says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave. That's that doulos word we've studied so many times. I have enslaved myself to others. Though I am free, I have made myself a slave that I might, here's the deal, I might win the more. What does it mean to win? Keep reading. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not yet myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means do what? Say it on the screen. That I might by all means... Say it like you mean it. That I might by all means... Right. Paul says it all matters to them for eternity. Paul has an eternal look at his culture. He looks around at the people around him and he goes, Oh my gosh, these people are completely worshiping the wrong thing. They're completely going the wrong direction. And I must by all means save some. I have to get them to the saving knowledge of Christ. Now the Apostle Paul is not the one that saves them, by the way. He's the one that leads them to the knowledge that saves them, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that saves them, right? But I want to ask you this as you're looking at this line. He says, I have become all things to all men that I might by what? By two words, by all means. Now say it like you mean it. That I might by all means. How many means have you applied to reaching the lost in your family or your community or your Workplace. How many means have you applied? Because the Apostle Paul says, whatever it takes. He says, whatever it takes for me to connect with these people. If they're Jewish, I'm going to get all up inside the Jewish part of that and figure that out. If they're Gentiles, I'm going to get all up inside that. If they're lawless people, I'm going to get all up in... I'm not going to be without the law because the law of Christ is going to cover me. I'm not going to be stupid and disobedient. But I am going to figure out a way to get inside their minds and their heads... By all means, I'm going to figure this out. You know what our church is supposed to be doing? And when I say our church, I don't mean the building. I don't mean the, the board members that plan it. I mean you. You know what we're supposed to be doing? By all means, figuring out how to connect with people outside our culture, outside our comfort zone, outside the way we think we got to connect with them and help them. So if it means I have a friend 
uh, Jason Garrison, I know my friend here, Christian, on the front row remembers him. Jason Garrison was in our youth group years ago, and he's a teacher. I think he's at a college or uh, in, in Tennessee now. Teaches at a high school or college there, English teacher, and a great guy. He was my intern for years at SMI, where I served before here. Um, and his testimony of getting saved, he got saved at a power team rally. Anybody know what that is? We are the power team. It's a whole bunch of guys that buff up their bodies and lift weights till their arms are like the size of my head, you know? And they just and then they put on spandex and they get on stage and they show you what they can do. And they lift weights and they take bricks and break, you know, concrete blocks and break them on their head and they put stuff on their chest and have people hit it with hammers and stuff. That's the goofiest thing I've ever heard of to lead people to Christ. I mean, I'm just going, you got it. Really? So a bunch of big old bulky, you know, guys are going to do that? Yes. And you know what? Jason Garrison, one of my good friends, was saved for the glory of God for all eternity at a We Are The Power Team rally. You know, where they just come out and just scare you with all their weights and all their stuff. He got genuinely saved there, and he serves the Lord full time now. So... By all means, if bluegrass, I love bluegrass, if bluegrass will help lead people to Christ, we got to figure out how to get up inside the bluegrass community and save them. You understand? If it's, if it's speed metal, and go back to my, my hard rocker guys, if it's speed metal and, and uh, what is that thing, what is the um, one you played for me the other day? Yeah, um, gosh, what was that? How great thou art! How great thou art! I heard a, I heard a how great thou art. I've never heard the other day, uh, by some band that was just you know. Oh Lord my God! And I'm going, whoa, whoa! That's the right words, just wrong music. But you know, it wasn't comfortable for me. But you know, this generation loves that. So if if we need to figure out a way to reach that generation, you know, and move that way for a little while, you need to figure that out. We can't just. Not let them do that. If we can figure out how to do it through fishing, which we have, by the way. We have a fishing day coming up at the end of uh, May, by the way. Our annual uh, fishing day is on a Saturday, not a Sunday this year, out at Camp Grace. And we, can, we lead kids to Christ every year by just inviting them to come fish and get a free rod and reel. Every year we see 10, 12 kids get saved. Why wouldn't we do that more? And I'm saying, why wouldn't you figure out how to do that? Why wouldn't you apply that to yourself if it's learning more about NASCAR or whatever it is? If there's some part of our culture we need to get into to understand, we're supposed to apply ourselves to that. Now, I'll give you two instructions. First, I want to tell you, let me, before I do that, let me tell you, it's just not going to be easy. And it's not easy for the Apostle Paul. You can read Apostle Paul's life. It wasn't easy for him to engage in that culture. And he, he was always being challenged. But he, he talks in this very passage, if you just keep reading before the next chapter, he talks about the self-discipline that it takes buffeting his body and he talks about the listen the training that it takes for him to be the guy that will be all things to all men if he's going to engage the culture he has to train himself to do that with the word of god with the word of god so and we've talked about this training situation remember the uss battleship versus the uh burke holder or burke destroyer the burke class destroyer uh the uss battleship no training needed. If you want to serve on our battleship today, all you got to do is punch tickets and clean bathrooms and sweep the floors when people are gone. It's a beautiful ship, but it's retired. 
Okay? By the way, God's not called you to that ship. <laughs> He's also not called you, like some people think in the Scriptures, to some cruise liner. People think when they get saved, well, I'll just be on a cruise liner the rest of my life, and you know, God will provide all my needs, and it'll just be nice and smooth sailing. That's not true either. God's called you to a place of literally, He says, to put on your armor. You're, you're going to war against an enemy for the sake of the gospel. And you have to get ready for that. He's not called us to a cruise ship or to a retired battleship. He's called us to be on the destroyer. And that means you have to engage your culture with some training. Let me give you a couple aspects of that. First Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter talking about people challenging you and try, giving you trials, tribulations. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Now, he's in the context of suffering. Here's what he says. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. There's your doctrine. There's your clarity of who Christ is. In your heart, put Christ as your Lord. The highest place is where Christ goes in every one of our hearts if we're... Following Christ, he gets the highest place. And when you do that, then he says this, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone ask, uh, who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. How do you have hope? You put Christ in the highest place in your heart. Every one of you that I know your personal stories, you have hope in the hardest of times when we lose loved ones, when we have trials that are heavy. You have hope because you have Christ at the highest place. But Peter says, when you put Christ at the highest place, you be prepared to give an answer. Well, that takes some training, doesn't it? To give an answer as to why you have hope. You have to be prepared to give an answer. Um, do it with gentleness and respect, he says, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior, Christ, would be ashamed of their slander. Now, the goal is not to become morally superior. Please understand, as a church, I don't want us to become morally superior. The goal is to survive our culture without being destroyed by it. I want this body of Christ, as it grows, I want us to become morally um, safe and live in safety in our, in our moral surroundings. And I want us to survive the culture and rescue as many as we can from the dangers of our culture. That's what we're supposed to do. You have, the, you have lifeline to rescue them from the culture. But you have to take the Word of God and put it out there to rescue from the culture. The last verse I want to share with you, 2 Timothy 3.15. Some of you know this very well. Study to show yourself approved, a workman who's not ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of God. It's 2.15, 2 Timothy 2.15. Sounded wrong when I said 3. It's 2.15, sorry, my fault. Study to show yourself approved, a workman rightly approved of God. Rightly dividing the word of God. You are to study. That word means labor, train, sweat, learn the scriptures. The Bible has all the answers for each person and every person you'll see this week that's going through a hard time. Do you know that? Your Bible has every answer for them. God gave every answer they need. The Bible's great guidance for everyone you meet. It's the most relevant and perfect resource to help others. If you don't train yourself in it, you can't help anybody. And you just watch them in their, watch the culture just suck them into consumerism or hedonism or materialism. So of all these truths, 
We have the responsibility to live in our freedom, to live in our freedom and overcome the culture with the Word of God and the truth. That's your responsibility as a church. John Piper has a great quote. I want to read the whole thing to you. Part of it will be on your handout. He says, In freedom for love's sake, you try to overcome unnecessary alienating differences that cut you off from unbelievers. Hear what he says? In freedom for love's sake, you try to overcome unnecessary alienating differences that cut you off from unbelievers. Well, I don't like Elvis. Well, I don't like Barry Manilow. Well, okay. We're going to get along anyway. You don't have to like the same music people. Who was it you kept talking about? The, the Frank Sinatra. I was blowing my mind when, when Brandon mentions Frank Sinatra at the talent contest. I was like, wow, I didn't even know he knew who that was. You know, because he's going, oh, great dog. I'm going, wow, how did Frank Sinatra get in that mix? Yeah, so, but you know what I'm saying? He's, we, we don't have to let that separate us. In freedom for love's sake, try... You try to overcome unnecessary alienating differences that cut you off from unbelievers. In freedom for love's sake, you learn their language, their culture. In freedom for love's sake, you eat dinner together the way they eat dinner. That's what the Apostle Paul had to do in that text. He had to eat dinner with them the way they eat dinner. In freedom for love's sake, you get into their politics and their sports and their businesses. And all the while, you keep a vigilant watch over your heart to make sure you are following the laws of Christ. The one law of Christ is to love unconditionally, to show that grace. I want you to be a church member, uh, a, ch- a part of our church that's effective. Um, when I took my brother Lynn down to his radiology appointments uh, a few weeks ago, there's a guy that waits, that's the security guard at the front entrance of, of the radiology department at, at uh, Mobile Infirmary. Mobile Infirmary in the USA share the same little radiology department. And this guy's a security guy. He wears a security outfit. He's got the microphone on his shoulder and the radio. And, uh, and his job description, I talked to him this week. Um, his job description is to guard the gate, guard the door, make sure nothing bad happens in the parking lot. He has wheelchairs and stuff to help people in. I don't think he has to, but he does. Um, that's his job description. That is not what this man does. His name is Mike Steber, by the way. If you're ever down there and just stop in the hospital, you ought to just go thank him. Um, I'm going to take him a tape of this maybe. But he is an amazing fellow. He has taken the culture that's around him. He works at a place every day where people who are getting treated for cancer walk right past him and go into a little waiting room and wait to go back and get their radiation treatment. And so you know what he did? He started figuring out in his head, how can I help these people? How can I minister to them? So he knows everybody's name. He has a chart that he keeps out, out with him of who's got an appointment at what time. And when you drive up, he already knows you were coming. Hey, good to see you. And he's got your name, and he, he gets to know your family members. Darlene and I have talked about this. And I was there one day when he carried some of the uh, people that came. They had like their whole family there for this treatment. And he carries in a little child that had fallen asleep in the back seat of the car, and he takes the child and holds the child, lets all the family through the door, and they get a wheelchair and push the, the one that was sick through the door, and he's got the child, and he holds the child for a little while, and he puts the child in, back into one of the family member's arms, and then he, when the child wakes up, he goes, hey, I've got some cookies back here. Can I go get him some cookies? Now, I'm telling you, his job description as security guard at that door has nothing to do with building relationships with those people. But he knows everybody by name. 
He sits down next to you and talks to you, asks how you're doing, gets to know you a little bit, and wants to engage his life with your life in case there's anything else he can do. And he tells you, hey, here's the restrooms. There's some, there's some drinks over here. There's some stuff over here. If you need anything, you call Mike. That's the kind of church members we're supposed to be, by the way. Not just sit and watch it happen, church members. Not just let it go by. Now, Mike could stand out front every day and just let people go by. Just let people go by and let people go by. He could. He could stand out front and let them go by. That's all he has to do. He might could get a wheelchair and roll a guy up the ramp and then push him in the door and go, you're on your own. That's, you're in there, the office. I'm out here. That's not how he lives his life. He has chosen to engage his culture around him and say, how can I reach these people with kindness, with mercy, with tenderness? And I mean, he knows everybody by name. And when it's time, they have a little bell in there to ring when you're done with your last treatment. Uh, when it's time to ring the bell, he's the guy that goes to the bell and goes, hey, give me his attention. You know, it's a great day because Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so's, you know, got their last treatment today, so they're going to ring the bell. I want y'all to give him a round of applause. And I mean, he makes everybody, you're engaged with him when he's doing that. Because he's excited for that person. You know, they're part of their hard treatment's over with. But when I walked up to see him the other day, my brother didn't have an appointment. I just went to see him. When I went to see him the other day, he was like, uh, hey, um, your, your brother's not coming? I went, no. And he knows I, it's my brother. And he said, everything okay? I said, yeah, I just want to talk to you for a minute. And he's like, really? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, tell me how Mr. Gibbons is doing. You know, he wanted to know about my brother. I'm going, wow. What, what a guy. He's engaged in his culture. I'm asking you, are you engaged with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your friends at a level that says, I know I'm going to learn their environment and I'm going to figure out a way to minister? That's the kind of church members we're supposed to be. Amen? It's challenging. Let's bow our heads together.